You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, in the late 1970s, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, the famous uh, folk singer, singer-songwriter, uh, became a Christian, uh, which immediately affected his art, his songwriting, and, and he released right after that three albums with distinct Christian uh, themes, and the first song on that first album was a song called Gotta Serve Somebody. Do you know this song? It's a great song. Uh, here's some of the lyrics. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor. They may call you chief. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, and then the chorus, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And the song goes on and on. It talks about all different types of people. Uh, And the chorus is always the same. Now, I think Bob Dylan had gotten it, uh, don't you? Uh, That no matter who you are, no matter your lot in life, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you're connected or unconnected, no matter what your belief system or worldview, you got to serve somebody. Like, everybody has a master. Now, When you heard those verses from Colossians 3 that were just read, I'm guessing they were a bit shocking to you, or at least they made you a little bit uncomfortable. I hope they did. Uh, Did you know that when the Colossian Christians sat there like you are sitting there and heard Paul's letter read to them the first time and that section was read, it also shocked them just for totally different reasons? We're shocked because those verses seem to be saying that slavery is okay when we know deep in our gut it is not okay, right? Even the word slave makes us squirm, and it should because there's so much injustice and oppression associated uh, with that word. In fact, the ESV uses the word bondservant there. I had Kelsey use the word slave because I wanted us to feel it. I wanted us to be jolted uh, by the word. The whole notion that there's a section in our Bible like this is almost embarrassing to us as Christians, right? Because how do we explain this away? I mean, there it is on the page, like a sore thumb with gangrene all in it. Like, what do we do with a section of Scripture that seems to condone something that we know is evil? Now, this is the third week uh, in our, uh, what's called the household code uh, of, of section of Colossians. It's, it's chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1. And the idea is that if Christ is our life, which, which the book of Colossians has established, Christ is our life, we've been made new in Him, we've been clothed in His character, then the first place that ought to show up is in the home, in the household. And so we've talked about husbands and wives two weeks ago. We talked about parents and children uh, last week. Uh, And this week, we're talking about masters and slaves. See, the household in the ancient world was usually much larger than our ancient households, or than our modern households. We typically think of parents and like 2.5 kids under one roof, that's a household. But then it was, back then it was like parents, kids, adult children, spouses of adult children, grandparents, uh, and then also there were domestic slaves or bond servants that were part 
uh, of the household. And so what Paul is saying in Colossians 3 is faith in Christ changes all those relationships. It actually changes every relationship we have, right? It transforms those, starting with the relationships that are most up close, most every day, the people we see uh, all the time and, and the people who know us the best. And so two weeks ago, we talked about marriage, and about half of you in the room thought, well, I can't totally relate to this. I'm not married, but I will, and you graciously listened. Uh, Last week, we talked about parenting, and so the number went up. About two-thirds of you, I'm guessing, thought, nope, never been a parent either. Can't relate to that. Uh, Today, we're talking about slaves and masters. So 100% of the room is saying, never been either of those, right? This, This text has nothing for me. But I want to say it does. It has much uh, for us. Now, there's a temptation for a pastor uh, to take this passage and just make it a sermon about work. Say, well, this is really just about employees and employers and how they work together. And I got to be honest, at the beginning of the week, that's what I set out to do. I set out to write a sermon about work. I thought it'll be easy. And then I started studying this passage a little more, and the more I became convinced that the big idea of this text is not work. The big idea of this, that's, that's a primary application of this text, our work life. But the big idea of this text, I think, deals more with the one we're, who we're serving, knowing who we serve. Right? You've got to serve somebody. And I actually think we've got to be really careful. And um, I think we've got to be really slow to make the jump from talking about a slave-master relationship in the first century Uh, to talking about an employee-employer relationship in the 21st century. It's a big jump, and there's a lot of difference there uh, that we can't just jump straight to it, right? Uh, I don't think it's fair to tackle this passage without addressing the issue of slavery, right? Because that's the elephant in the room. Like, what do we do with that as Christians? And as much as I wanted to skip ahead and say, just be the best employee that you can be in the name of Jesus, let's close in prayer, I thought, we've got to deal with this issue of slavery, and I couldn't ignore the fact that this text and others like it has been used to to promote and to condone this evil institution of slavery. People have been hurt by it. People have been oppressed by it. People have been treated as non-persons because of it, all right? So I want to do two things. Uh, First, I want to look at the original significance of the text. Like, what is God saying in His gospel to the Colossians, and then I want to look at some contemporary application. What's he saying to us uh, in this same text, all right? So, original significance, then contemporary application. That's all we're going to do, all right? Now, to, to get at the original significance, let me just read a couple verses. Look at Colossians 3. Let me read the first verse and the last verse in that section. Colossians 3, 22 bondservants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And then skip to chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants or your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Don't you wish that Paul had said something else there? I mean, I do. Don't you wish Paul would have said, slaves, in Christ you are now free. Do not submit yourselves to the yoke of slavery any longer. You're out of here. I wish he would have said that. 
But it appears at first reading that he sort of tightens the grip on slavery, doesn't it? Because he says, obey your masters in everything, like flawless obedience. I wish he would have said, masters, hey, let your slaves go, set them free. It is not God's will for you to own people. I wish he would have said that. I mean, we're talking about the Apostle Paul here. Why doesn't he condemn slavery outright? He is not weak sauce in his opinions about righteousness and God's will, right? Paul can bring it. He could come strong if he wants to. And I think that's what bugs me about this text. Why doesn't he? What he he seems to say here seems to promote and condone this institution. Now, I should note that there are differences between the slavery that's being talked about here and the the type of slavery that we automatically think of. We automatically think of 19th century transatlantic slave trade where people were systematically kidnapped from their homeland and brought and sold into a lifetime of slavery. That's what we think of. And that heinous blight on our history, we can't shake that image uh, in, in our mind. All right? It's one of the reasons I think the, e, the ESV uh, uses the word bondservant here. Paul actually condemns that type of slavery in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He calls it man-stealing, kidnapping t- t- into slavery. And he says that is unjust, that's unrighteous, that's unholy, that's sinful, that's wrong. He condemns it. But here, we see the term bondservant, right? And I think the ESV chose that word to distinguish between what's going on here and what we automatically think of, kidnapping, because it's different, right? Bondservants uh, uh, were often in service to pay off a debt. Bondservants often entered into this type of service uh, to uh, escape poverty, to provide security. There's security and be a part of a household, and it was better to die uh, in starvation. So sometimes they entered in, and bondservants often could uh, uh, get their freedom back, all right? So it's different than what we think of in our history, but I don't want to soft sell it. It's still slavery that we're dealing with here. One human being owns another human being and, and, and essentially uh, gets to tell them what to do and what not to do, right? It's slavery. It's different, but I don't want to soft sell it too much. Now, slavery, we know, is not part of the created order. Slavery is not part of God's design, unlike marriage, unlike parenting, which we've talked about the past couple of weeks. Uh, In the beginning, God created people, male and female, and He gave them work to do. He said, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion uh, over the earth, get to work cultivating all the earth so that it is glorious like the original garden that He placed the man and the woman in. And and, and that's going to be a lot of work, and and it's going to take a lot of work to do it, so you're going to need to help with that and all that work. And so God's plan was not to give them slaves, right? He gave them children, Right? Kids, you do the work. Don't you wish that was true? Um, sometimes when I'm mowing my own grass and my kids are inside enjoying the AC, probably eating ice cream or something, I'm sure they are, uh, that's when I think I've kind of failed on God's design here. He gave me kids, right? Work the land. Slavery, slavery is not a product of creation. Slavery is a product of the fall. Like when sin came into the world, it gave people this drive to not only want to have dominion uh, uh, over the earth, but to have dominion over other people, right? So with sin came oppression. With sin came war. 
and captives in war were often placed in slavery. With sin came poverty and unjust financial systems, and so people often sold themselves into slavery to escape poverty or to pay off a debt or just to stay alive. And so, slavery is not a part of creation, it's a part of the fall. And here's the deal. The Bible is written in a fallen world to a fallen world, and so it never glosses over uh, the fallenness of the world. It never smooths over and, and pretends it's not there. And so here we are, it's right in front of us in Colossians 3, because by the time we get to Paul's day, uh, it's something like 20 to 30 percent of the entire Roman Empire are people living in slavery. I mean, that's staggering. A third of the people in the Roman Empire are living in slavery. It was this entire system that was fully accepted by the whole society. Nobody thought about it being unjust. It never crossed anyone's mind, right? They just took it for granted. Now, into that system, into that society, Paul speaks the gospel. And I want you to remember that what we're reading here in Colossians is a personal letter written by Paul to an actual church with actual people, with actual lives and actual circumstances. Right? This is not a general treatise on the ills of slavery. Right? This is not an appeal to Caesar or the powers that, that be. It is, a, it is a personal letter to these particular Christians in Colossae about how to relate to one another in the Lord, in the setting that God has put them in. So Paul doesn't lead a revolution, but what he says here is actually revolutionary. Because here's what the gospel says to these Colossians. Number one, it says, slaves and masters, you both have a new master now. Five times in these verses, Jesus is called the Lord or the master. It's the same word in the original language. Paul's actually using this wordplay that we don't hear when we, when we read it in English. This is what it should sound like. Let me read it again. It should sound like this. Bond servants... Obey in everything those are who, who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the master. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the master and not for men. Knowing that from the master you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are, you are serving the master, Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. See, the gospel tells both the bondservants and the masters, hey, you both have a new boss now. You have a new authority. He's the one you serve. Serve him, and as you do, that's where you'll find freedom. Like, serve him, and it'll transform all your relationships. Serve him, it'll transform your work life, which is the second thing the gospel says to the Colossians. It says, slaves and masters, you should both view your work differently now. So, slaves, you're set free from people-pleasing because you have a new master and he's already pleased with you. Slaves, you can work with your whole heart because you're serving Jesus now, and he's worth it. Slaves, you can be certain that you have an inheritance coming your way someday. That was never promised to a slave, an inheritance. It is amazing that Paul is addressing the slaves in this letter at all. Apparently, they were sitting just in the midst of everybody else while this letter was being read. And you know what? Paul talks to them as people, not as property. He treats them as people who can make decisions, who can choose to do the right thing or the wrong thing, who, who have an inheritance, a reward as a child of God. That's amazing. 
He treats them with dignity that no one else was giving them. But he also says, masters, your work is different now too. He says, you're to treat your bondservants justly and fairly. In other words, treat them like God treats people. Don't exploit them. Don't manipulate them. Don't abuse them. This was unheard of for, slaves, or for slave owners to get this kind of instruction. Aristotle, we looked at his household code a couple weeks ago. Uh, Aristotle said uh, that when it comes to talking about a, a slave-master relationship, he said it's irrelevant to talk about justice. This is, what he, this is what Aristotle wrote in his work, Ethics. He said, there can be no injustice towards, that, towards things that belong to you or things that you own. In other words, you can't treat property unjustly. But Paul says, no, they're not property. They're people. Treat them justly. The final thing that the gospel says to the Colossians is slaves and masters, you guys are brothers now. Amazing. It doesn't say it in Colossians. It actually says it in a little book called Philemon, which is connected to Colossians. Because, you know, Philemon uh, was a guy who uh, is a Colossian. And Philemon was a slave owner, and one of his bondservants, one of his slaves, Onesimus, ran away from him, and evidently maybe even stole some stuff from him, ran away from Colossae to Rome. Providentially, uh, Onesimus ends up meeting the Apostle Paul and becoming a Christian. And so Paul sends Onesimus the slave back to Philemon the master, and you know what he says? Hey, Philemon, don't just receive him back as a bondservant, receive him back as a beloved brother. That is amazing that a slave and a master would be thought of as family, related with the same father, that they could serve the good of one another because they're brothers, right? See, what Paul is writing here in Colossians, everything he's saying uh, sets the stage for the eventual abolition of slavery. It, It will not be a quick revolution. It's this slow change from within, right? But that's how the gospel works. The gospel changes things from the inside out. It changes human hearts, which which changes relationships, which changes cultures and societies, which changes oppressive systems and institutions like slavery. Paul is not condoning slavery here. He's actually turning it upside down in such a way that eventually it will be unthinkable. It, it, It will be unworkable. But the beauty of this letter is that Paul is addressing real people Uh, in their present situation of their lives. How do they walk with Jesus right now, no matter what their situation? Even if their situation is awful, if it's oppressive, how do they walk with Jesus right now, and even in tough times? Dick Lucas says that the glory of the gospel is that it has something to give in the worst situations we experience. Isn't that great? Like, no matter what your circumstance, no matter how terrible it is, The gospel has something to say about how to walk with Jesus right now. So I want to turn to us for a few minutes and just look at some contemporary application for us in this text. What is the gospel saying to us here? Uh, This letter, it's speaking to the everyday reality of the Colossians. Uh, So I think its application for us deals with the everyday reality of our lives, which primarily uh, deals with our everyday work life, right? This is a Monday through Friday text uh, for us. Uh, lately, I've been watching, um, re-watching some old episodes of The Office, and fans, uh, great show. 
there's a reason that that show was so popular for so long, and, and there's a reason that uh, before that, the movie Office Space was also so popular, uh, because both of those capture, I think, the mundaneness of work and work relationships in a way that is both hilarious, but also just oppressive, right? I mean, those work environments, they feel ridiculous, absurd, and sometimes they feel like inhumane in the way way that the people relate to each other there. And I don't know if you saw the movie Office Space. It came out in 1999. Um, But Peter uh, is the main character, and Peter is so done with his workplace. He's, he's, He's tired of it. He's tired of filling out TPS reports. Uh, He's tired of his condescending boss who's always trying to get him to come in on Saturdays, and he's going to quit. But before he he quits finally, uh, Peter has this meeting with these two consultants who've been brought in by the company to do some layoffs. And remember this scene? The, the, the consultants are both named Bob, uh, so they call them the Bobs, and, and, and they want to meet with Peter. Uh, and this meeting is actually really insightful about work. So Bob, number one, says to Peter, Peter, we're just trying to, you know, we're trying to get a feel of how people spend their day. Would you just walk us through your typical day? And Peter says, well, sure, Bob, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, generally, I come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh, I use the side door. That way, Lumberg doesn't see me come in. That Lumberg is his boss. After that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. And Bob number two says, space out? What do you mean? He goes, yeah, I just stare at my desk, uh, but it looks like I'm working. I do that for probably another hour after lunch, too. And he says, I'd say in a given week, I probably do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. He says, the thing is, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's just that I don't care. It's a problem of motivation. If I work hard and Inatech ships a, ships a few extra units, I don't see another dime. So where's the motivation? And here's another, another thing, Bob. I have eight different bosses. And Bob number one is like, what, eight bosses? He goes, yeah, Bob. So that means when I make a mistake, I have eight, peop- eight different people coming by to tell me about it. So that's my real motivation, just to not get hassled. That and the fear of losing my job. But you know, Bob, that'll only make you work hard enough to not get fired. And I thought, that is so insightful about work (laughs) in a funny way. Like some of you feel like that in your job right now. Like there's no real motivation. Like maybe you feel underappreciated, underchallenged, undercompensated, underutilized. Maybe you feel like your work environment is oppressive in some way because the policies are ridiculous or unfair or the strategies make no sense. Maybe you feel bored at work. Maybe you feel, find yourself just living for the weekend. Some of you are like, that's not me at all. I love my job. I love my work. I'm totally fulfilled. I'm not struggling with motivation at all. In fact, all my spare moments are given to work. Every spare inch of idle thought in my mind goes to my work. And you don't have any problem with feeling motivated. Some of you, if you're honest, have made work the center of your life. Now, no matter who you are and what your situation, if you are a Christian, you've actually been given a new motivation for work that's different from all the other ways that the world is motivated for work, right? Your primary motivation is not your salary, it's not your status, it's not your career path, it's not to avoid getting fired or hassled by your eight bosses, right? Your primary motivation is found in verse 23 and 24. Let me read it again. 
Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. And some commentators say that that's an imperative, that he's really saying, serve the Lord Christ. So he says, whatever you do, work heartily. And, and whatever here just means whatever, right? There's, there's, there's not a task in your day where you can't work heartily, which means from the depths of your soul. Like, there's nothing too mundane, too boring, too tedious, too difficult that hasn't in Christ been infused with new meaning, right, and and new motivation. And that new meaning and and new motivation comes from your audience, the one you serve. You got to serve somebody, and that who you serve actually makes all the difference in how you work. So, as Christians, it says we are working As for the Lord, is the word he says. We're serving the Lord Christ. Christ is the center of all things. The book of Colossians has established that. So he is the center uh, of our work life, right? We come here on Sunday and we give ourselves uh, to God in a worship service. And then we leave here and we go to our jobs all week long. You know what we do? We give ourselves in service to God in works of service. In worship to God in works of service, right? We... Worship becomes, uh, work becomes an act of worship to us because of who our boss is, because of who our authority is. We live all of our life before the face of God, quorum Deo. He is our new authority, our new master. So we are not ultimately, as Christians, serving a corporation. Uh, We're not serving an idea or a vision. We're not serving a boss. We're not serving a career path. We're not serving a resume. We're serving Jesus. Whatever your job is, you're serving Jesus. That brings amazing freedom to your life. It brings amazing joy to your life because you can glorify God in your work with joy no matter what you're doing. And I got to tell you, sometimes it's an act of faith to actually work with joy like that, isn't it? You have to remind yourself of it. I mean, yesterday I went up to the office, it was a Saturday, to finish writing this sermon. And as I was going, I had in my mind that everyone in the city of Austin is outside enjoying the beautiful day, and I'm going to the office. And I did not show up at the office joyful. And you may think, oh, pastors just love writing sermons, right? Opening their Bible and their computer and just, it's the work of the Lord. How could you not be filled with joy? I had to consciously, and I, seriously, I did this. I was like, Lord, I need to apply the very text I'm working on, right? Jesus, oh yeah, I serve you. Like, would you help me in this day, in this task, to serve you with joy? Right? We have a new motivation because we have a new boss, a new master. Now, let me just end with a couple of practical application points in this text. Let me talk to you first of all, if you're an employee if you're working for someone else, which I'm guessing is almost all of us. Two things in verse 22 for us, if you are an employee. Verse 22, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Here's the two things. Number one, not by way of eye service and not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Paul says, don't work by way of eye service and don't work as a people pleaser. Those both deal with external appearances. So when Paul says, don't work by way of eye service, he means don't just do your work because your boss has his or her eye on you, 
right? Don't just do good work because you're being watched and, and, and then cut corners the rest of the time. Like, don't do the bare minimum so you don't get fired. Don't give the appearance of hard work when you're really just kind of taking it easy, going through the motions. Christians should be the best employees there are. My grandfather was a a painter by trade, and my dad grew up working with him. And my dad told me that he remembers that whenever they were on a job painting someone's house, uh, my grandfather would, would always paint the mailbox. It was never a part of the contract, never part of the job, but he always would paint the mailbox, make it look nice, just make it pop, right? It, it was just the work of care uh, on his part. And he did it even though the employer wasn't watching, right? So in your job, paint the mailbox, right? Paint the mail, do the, do the extra thing that nobody even knows about because you're working for the Lord, not because somebody's eye is on you. And then he says, not as people pleasers, Uh, meaning don't simply do your work to get noticed or to advance yourself or to promote yourself. You're not working to make a name for yourself, right? Uh, You're you're not working to build your personal brand uh, or, or to gain approval from others. You already have the approval of the one whose approval matters most. So work for him. Everything else will take care of itself. Now, let me speak to employers. If you are an employer, you own a business, you're a manager, you're, you're an authority over others in some way, uh, verse 1 in chapter 4 has a couple helpful words for us. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He says justly and fairly. That means treat those who work for you with dignity and treat them with impartiality, right, or, or, or equity. Tr- don't treat people as products or, or pro- projects. Treat them as people, right? Don't just treat them as something to advance the bottom line. Treat them as people. So if you are a manager or a boss in some way, how does justice and fairness show up in your hiring practices, in, in your firing practices, How do you compensate your employees? How do you provide rest for your employees or Sabbath for your employees? Are your policies just and fair? Do your employees think, I'm a better person, I'm a better human being, more fully human because I work for this person? Yesterday, the sign at El Arroyo on 5th Street, love their signs. This is what it said. It said, my boss told me to have a good day. So I went home. (laughs) Look, you don't want your employees thinking that to have a good day, they've got to get as far away from you as possible, right? Christians should be the best bosses, justice and fairness. See, being a Christian, it it transforms our work life, uh, and it transforms our work relationships, but the transforming factor is our new master, The transforming factor is our new boss. We're serving someone new, and that makes all the difference. It changes everything. Like, the most important thing you can know about yourself is that you don't belong to yourself. If you are a Christian, you are owned, right? That doesn't sit well with us sometimes. The Bible calls us bondservants of Christ Jesus, literally slaves of Christ Jesus. But here's the glorious gospel. Jesus, who is the master of masters, 
came low and he entered the slave market. He came looking for us to purchase our freedom. And the way he purchased our freedom is he made himself a slave. He sold himself. He paid the price to earn our freedom, to set us free. It's amazing. Look at, uh, or listen to 1 Corinthians verse, or chapter 6. It says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so now glorify God in your body. Jesus bought us. We belong to Him. And He's the only master uh, who brings total freedom, right? He's the only master who promises an eternal inheritance. He is the only master who enables us to walk in what it means to be fully human again. You got to serve somebody. Everybody serves somebody. Why would you serve anyone else but Jesus? He's the only master worth our life. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.